Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. Heavenly Father, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our wills and bend them to your own. And above all else, Lord Jesus, set our hearts on fire with a love for you. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. Um, If you have your Bibles with you, we're going to be in John chapter 19 uh, again this week. Um, This is Palm Sunday, and as we attempt to organize our life around uh, our understanding of time, even around the life and work of Jesus Christ, um, we follow the church calendar. And the church calendar usually is in seasons that deal with concepts or themes around the life of Jesus. We have been in Lent, continue to be in Lent right now, that is preparing us for our experience of the death and resurrection of Christ at the end of this week. But this week, is Holy Week. It is the most important week of the year, the holiest week of the year. Uh, And in this week, it's not just concepts or themes that that we are looking at, but the time zooms in, slows down, and we walk day by day in the very footsteps of Jesus, beginning this morning with Palm Sunday as we remember his entrance into the city of Jerusalem that would begin the events that end with his death and resurrection at the end of the week. Palm Sunday, oftentimes called the triumphal entry, is, is, a, uh, is a major moment in the Gospels and sparks off our experience of all that is coming here in the next few days. But this outpouring of praise that we read about and contemplated on this morning and reenacted in a way as well, uh, this, this throwing down of cloaks on the road and this, this cutting of branches and waving them. The, the people recited a liturgy, Hosanna to the Son of David. None of this makes any sense without a context. Even in the ancient world, this didn't just happen. So let me explain a little bit about what's going on and what this means. So Jesus is entering the holy city of David, Jerusalem, and he is being welcomed as a king. He is fulfilling prophecy. Zechariah 9.9 says, Say to the daughter of Zion, which is the holy city of God, Behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Scripture to the Jewish people, as it should also be for us, is more than just something that is tossed on a coffee mug or a t-shirt or, uh, or said in a moment when we need inspiration, but it is how they understood God was working throughout history, how they interpreted all the events of their day, how they knew how to behave and act and understand and be in the moment in which they they lived. And here, what is happening is they are reflecting enthronement ceremonies from throughout the Scripture. Solomon, in 1 Kings chapter 1, after he is made king, rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. 2 Kings chapter 9, this guy, this military commander named Jehu, is made king. And when he's made king, they throw their cloaks down on the ground in front of him on the stones as he walks. 
Hosanna, the word that they are saying means save us in Hebrew. And they're saying Hosanna to the son of David. This is a messianic title, a title of the Messiah, the one who is to come and to save them. And David being the greatest king Israel has ever known and the one to whom God promised that his heir, someone from his line and lineage, would always be on the throne. So save us, son of David, is a significant phrase that is being tossed out here. They are quoting from Psalm 118. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. And they're waving palm branches, which are symbols of victory and praise that you can read about in Leviticus chapter 23 and even in Nahum chapter 8. They recognized this man who had preached with such power, shown authority over sin and sickness, He provided food for over 5,000 people. He calmed the storm. He walked on water. He made the blind see. And even recently before this had raised Lazarus from death itself. The people this day recognized that the events that were taking place here were part of a longer story. This man with this power, this authority, this proven connection with God was coming into the city of God. And they interpreted that through the story of the Scripture. But they saw their story as the entering in of a king coming to defeat their enemies, the occupying Roman force, the outsiders that were ruling in Israel that shouldn't have been there. But just as Solomon had expanded their borders, they were hoping to see Jesus now step in as king to expand their borders. And Jehu, who we just talked about, you're going to have to read about Jehu, he uh, he was made king. Again, he was a military commander, was made king, and he came into the city, and he, uh, and he massacred the horrible king who had come before him, threw his wife Jezebel off of a balcony, and the dogs ate her, and, and then he slaughtered all the pagan worshipers that were there. Uh, they worshiped Baal, and, they turned, and he turned their temple into a public bathroom. Jehu wasn't messing around. Right, So this is the fervor that overtook Jerusalem. In Matthew's gospel, he says that the entire city was stirred up. Here is Jesus, this man who commands the storms to be quiet, is now coming in and, oh, he's riding on a donkey, like Solomon and like Zechariah said that he would. And we just know he's coming in to slaughter the Romans, to take up the sword, to throw Pontius Pilate and Herod off the balcony so the dogs can lick up their blood. But Jesus' mind was on a greater story. One that did not begin with the political enemies of Israel, but with the great enemies of all mankind, Satan, sin, and death. The overarching story of the Scripture that we call redemptive history, that we rehearse and remember every week here at the communion table and very specifically at the Easter vigil this upcoming Saturday night, We see the story of Scripture being that God created all things good in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. 
And that in Genesis chapter 3, there is a rebellion against God by our first parents, Adam and Eve. Not by eating some kind of cursed fruit that poisoned them, but by their actions of telling God, we believe that we know best, that our rule is better than your rule, that our way of doing things and our perception and our wisdom is greater than yours, that we put put ourselves in opposition to God. And we see from Genesis chapter 3 that that sin spreads from Adam and Eve to Cain and Abel to to, uh, a myriad of people after that until we get to the point of Noah and the ark when the whole world needs to be reset because wickedness has spread across the whole earth. And then when Noah comes back onto dry land... He quickly moves into a place of drunken sin again. And we start to move right after that time of, in this description in Genesis uh, into what's called the table of nations, the part of the Bible that we never want to read because it just says, this guy had that son who had this son who was the father of this son. And if you read an older version, it says he begat who begat him and begat. We don't like, I don't even know what begatting is. Is that, I don't even know if that's good. But, and so the reason that that's in there, that table of nations is to show the passage of time and to show that sin is continuing to spread just like it did before Noah. Until even we get to the place of the Tower of Babel, when all of humanity comes together and they start to organize and and make plans as to how they can work against the plan and purposes of God. They come together. God, remember, in Genesis had told them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Go out. They come to the place of Babel and they say, let's build a city and a big tower. And they specifically say, so that we will not be scattered across the face of the whole earth. The plan at Babel was to go, we know what God has told us to do and the purpose of what humanity is. And we're going to start using the ingenuity and the engineering gifts that the Lord has given to us. And we're going to organize for the exact opposite of the plan and purpose of God. And so we start to see the organization of sin even into countries and empires like Egypt that we're about to run into as well. God confuses their language, goes, no, that's not what I said to do, and he scatters them anyway. God's like, I've got a plan, and and we're going to work that plan, and you're going to do the plan that I have, and he scatters them across the face of the whole earth, and we see God begin a story of redemption where he chooses a guy named Abraham, and he says to Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation, into a great people. I will be your God. You will be my people. And that people is going to be a blessing to every nation in the world. All those that just got scattered at Babel, your people are going to be a blessing to all the nations in the world. And we see this new covenant that God has made with Abraham passed down. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. And Joseph is brought down into... Egypt, and and the people are enslaved by Pharaoh and Egypt. And this is where we see Moses. God hears the cries of of the people of Abraham, and he sends Moses down to bring them out, bring them through, miraculously, through the Red Sea that, that prefigures what we understand happens in baptism. That through the waters we are brought out from under oppression and into a people and into a place of promise through the water. And so God saved them, brings them out. He, he gives them the law and the sacrificial system to, to govern themselves, to say, okay, look, 
If you, if you are in line with your first parents, Adam and Eve, and you believe that your way is better and that you think that you can bring about righteousness and holiness and goodness on your own, well, then here's the law that shows you what perfection looks like. So go do that. Oh, and by the way, you need to recognize that when you're not holy and perfect in that way, that it has severe consequences. And so that you know the depth of the depravity of what sin is, I'm going to give you a sacrificial system so that you recognize that something actually is harmed by your sin, and death comes through sin. And so you're going to have to take an animal, and you're going to have to put your hand on the top of that animal as if casting off your sin onto that animal, pull his head back, take a knife, slit his throat, and bleed him out, and stand there and watch. So that you understand, if you're going to do this on your own, like Adam and Eve said you were going to, and you don't do it perfectly, this is what's going to happen. Like this is the ramifications of sin. And we see the rest of the Old Testament, Israel trying to live into this impossible task. Joshua is to carry the people into the promised land and conquest. He doesn't finish that like he's supposed to. We see after Joshua, judges are raised up. There's this cycle in judges. It's, it is a messed up book. Just read it sometime. That, um, that, that basically what happens is that the people praise God and like, God, you're great. And then they start to follow other gods and idols and they get oppressed and beaten up, and then they cry out to God, oh, you've forsaken us, please help us. And so God raises up a judge. He saves them by his, his mighty hand. They come back and go, yeah, you're great. And then a little while later, they start to follow other gods, and bad guys come in and oppress them again, and they go, please help us. And God raises up a judge and brings them back home, and they go, yay, God. And then they, like, there's this cycle throughout judges. Just read the book. That's the, that's the I mean, there's more detail than that, but that's basically how it works in the book. And so the people then call for a king. A king will help govern us. A king will, will save us and keep us in line from this, from this kind of cycle. And God goes, look, if that's what you want, I'll give it to you. But just know, it's not going to go like you wanted to go. That the king is going to tax you. The king is going to take you to war. The king is going to not lead you in the way that you need to go. And they're like, God, we don't care. We want a king. We know that that's what's going to, to help us. So the kings come. And what do the kings do? Tax them. Lead them into violence and war. Lead to the point where there is a separation in the country of Israel itself. And their enemies come and take them into exile. While the kings are leading them astray in so many ways... God sends prophets out of his mercy to bring them back. Hey, remember the word of God. Remember the covenant. Remember what God has said. Come back. Repent. And so that disaster won't come upon you if, you if you go this direction that you're going. And what did they do to the prophets? They rejected them. They beat them. They murdered them. They threw them out of the city. There's this cycle in the scripture that we constantly see of, of our rebellion against God in sin, us paying the, the price and the ramifications of our sin, God being merciful to help, us rejecting him again. Constantly we come back to the garden and are saying, we rule better than you do. And so when Israel on this day has Jesus coming into Jerusalem Another king. But when they called Hosanna, son of David, Hosanna, save us, God heard their prayers more deeply than they could ever have imagined. They saw the need for a short-term political vindicator. God saw the need for an end to the ongoing cycle of sin. 
the division and brokenness and the power of sin and, and the death that it brings. These are our true enemies. Psalm 119 that the people were quoting as they welcomed Jesus in, saying, Hosanna and save us. Well, it goes on. The part they didn't read. The Lord is God, and He has made His light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. There must be just payment made for the atrocities on the part of humanity. The rejection of their God, the blood that has been spilled, the hurt and the horror and the subjugation of creation. Like Jehu who had to come in and bring the new, that the new king must make amends for the old ruler. But Jesus is not the king to banish the Romans. He's a much greater king. The King of kings and the Lord of lords. The one who will pay the penalty for the sins of the world. The one who is bringing the great sacrifice and is the great sacrifice. The one who will crush Satan under his feet. The true vindicator who will bring forgiveness to break the power of sin. And the one who will heal all nations. One last time for all people. Jesus will endure the betrayal of His people again. Because when Jesus does not fulfill their temporal political desires in the way that they expect, when He does not bend to the pressure of the mob, these voices that cry, Hosanna this day, say crucify Him in just a few days. Our liturgy is written in the way that it is written for us to not only hear these words, but to experience them. For we gathered in the courtyard and said, Hosanna, praise, save us. And we sit here and say, crucify Him. There's nothing new under the sun. And the cycle of praise and idolatry and cursing and rejection of God, only for Him to be gracious and merciful, continues in our hearts even today. It is here, in this moment, when all of those who were gathered together in Jerusalem are thinking only of their own passions and desires and temporary relief, that Jesus has the entirety of the story of Scripture in mind. He thinks back to the day of the garden when the rebellion began and the consistent rebellion of His people in their hearts ever since. The thousands of years of sin and danger and murder and suffering and destruction and pain and rape and pursuit of unhealth and anger. And Jesus says, this is what ends today. And bearing the wrath of God for all of these sins, the rebellion of Adam and Eve and all those in between and yours and mine and the sins of all time, Jesus, out of obedience to God and out of His great love for us, is bound and beaten and sacrificed in our stead to pay the price so that we may share in the victory. Jesus, after all of this, carrying the weight of Adam and Eve and all of their children, hanging, spent and bloodied on the cross, gazes one final time out at the drunken faces of the Roman soldiers, the sneering mouths of the church leaders, the mocking crowd, his weeping mother, his ashamed disciples, and he utters the sixth 
of the seven phrases from the cross. It is finished. All of this is finished. The broken story is finished. The power of sin is finished. The conquest of death is finished. The rule of Satan is finished. Tetelestai, he said in the Greek. Grammatically, it's in the perfect tense, which means that it is done and still done. That it is an ongoing done and finished. That it means that it is something that continues to be finished. What is happening here finishes what was before and finishes what is to come. The serpent on the garden is finished. The blood of Abel finished. The shame of Abraham finished. The exodus from Egypt and the oppression of his people finished. The sacrificial system finished. The conquest of the land finished. The rebellion of all the kings finished. The murder of the prophets avenged and finished. The time of death and dying and despair, it is finished. The need for fear is finished. The oppression of His people is finished. The sins of the world are finished. Your sin, my sin, our fear of death, our shame, our pride, they are finished, Jesus says. We add nothing to our salvation. When we say, I know Jesus forgives, but I stop it, it is finished. It is finished, he said. Not it's almost done. Not I've done my part, now you do yours. Not here's your second chance. Finished, he said, and he proclaimed. This is the man who has preached with such authority that the storms listen to him. That the dead rise. And he looks now upon us and he says, it is finished. It is the authority and the Word of God. It is finished. Our exhaustion of trying to prove our own value and worth is finished. The wondering if we're alone or valued is finished. The exhaustion of trying to play God in our own lives where we think we should control everything and everything should go the way that we think that it should and nobody should think any differently. It is finished. It is finished. All things but the plan of God as shown in His Scripture are finished. But Dan, you say, there's still pain. I still sin. We still sin. Others still sin. The world is broken. How can you say that it's finished? This was 2,000 years ago. It doesn't seem to be done to me. Well, friends, God in His mercy did not end the world at the moment of the proclamation of victory. He has ushered in this victory and this truth, allowing us to live in it and share it with the rest of the world so that all nations of the world will be blessed. This is the story of the Scripture that Babel still needs to be reversed. We see it at Pentecost when God then, instead of confusing the languages, unites the languages so that His purpose of His gospel may be once again taught to all people. He raises up the church to take this news of the conquest of Christ and His victory over death to the end of the earth. It is by His mercy that He has not ended the world, but has raised up a people to shout and to bring this glorious hope to the world. That more people may know the goodness of God and the love of our Savior, the church, you, me. We have work to do. And so we live in the knowledge that the victory is won. We hunger for the holiness of God in a world that is still sick with sin, but we have been saved from the penalty of sin. 
We are being saved from the power of sin, and we will be saved from the very presence of sin. Jesus has promised to to return to make all things new. And now we live in this place, opposite of the way that the world lives, with grace and hope and joy and courage and strength. Even in our struggles, we know that the Lord has won because in our ungodliness, God's grace is shown to be sufficient. In our refusal to live as defeated victims, in in our resolution to live through the power of the Spirit in a way that brings life to others and not only for our own gain, we are showing that, that sin and death has no future, that sin has no victory, that death has no sting, for it is finished. Make no mistake, friends, it is finished means finished. There is no grand battle between God and Satan with the, with the outcome and the balance. It is finished. Don't, be, don't feel defeated by the newswire and the news that you hear around the world. Don't be consumed with fear. The victory is assured. Sin, anxiety, shame, fear, hurt, anger, pride, it is finished. It no longer rules. It is mortally wounded and it may thrash in its death throes. But make no mistake, friends, it has been conquered. One day Christ will come to renew, to complete what has already been completed. What has now been saved and given overwhelming hope, He will come to consummate. Until then, we have surety and confidence and absolute hope in finality. Because on the cross, with some of His last physically with the last moments in which he was physically able to utter anything, through his hoarse voice, in the same breath that breathed life into Adam, he says, it is finished. Guaranteeing the restoration of all things, including our own hearts. Bear it no more, friends. Turn your weeping into laughing and your mourning into dancing. For the Lord has said, It is finished. Feel the weight of your sin removed. The flooding in of the joyful Spirit of God. Stand renewed and with strength and courage and joy. For our Lord has finished it all. From the cross, the place that seems like the the apex of our rebellion, comes the glorious words of grace and forgiveness and restoration. For our God is the God whose character it is to always show mercy. And he looks out upon us before he bows his head in death. And he says to us throughout the ages, words that should ring in our hearts and in this hall and in our communities and in the world. Words that have not dimmed over 2,000 years, but are all the more needed and all the more clear. It is finished. Pray with me. Lord, when we look around this world and we're tempted to despair, bring these words into our minds. It is finished. 
when we are tempted to sin, when idolatry, when ways, other ways of thinking are attractive, help us to repent, to come to you, to remember it is finished. When our shame for the things that we have done in the past, for the places that we know that where death still lingers in our lives, when we are tempted to despair or to be bitter or to be ashamed, help us remember you said it is finished. Where we are afraid, let us remember your victory cry, it is finished. Where others still hold power over us because of how they have manipulated, hurt, and wounded us, let us look into the face of that sin and say, no more, it is finished. And let us live such lives in this world by the power of your Holy Spirit that we cannot participate in the way that the world works, but to live instead by the glorious great hope of your gospel in which where there is division, we sow unity. Where there is anger, we bring peace. Where there is sadness, we bring joy. Let us soothe those who are in need and look upon even poverty itself and say, it is finished. It is finished. What we are enduring now is only temporary until you return to make all things new. You have won the victory, Lord. And we pray that you would haste the day to come and claim it. And until then, let us live as people of your victory. And may our battle cry be, it is finished. For those who are in this room who do not know you, who have not yet come to the knowledge and love of you, let them this day hear your words from the cross. Your sin can be finished too. Let us come to a place of repentance and belief and baptism where we are washed clean and that we enter into your completeness. Lord, anything that is not of you, it is finished. And so let us praise you. Let us serve you as we await the day of your coming. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And so then, with confidence.